In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verse 1 all the way through verse 4 of chapter 4. So a fairly lengthy section this morning, Acts 3, 1 through 4, 4. If you're using the the blue ESV Bible and the seatbacks in front of you, you can find our text on page 911. The title of the sermon is By Faith in His Name, and the words for our the key words for our worshipers in training are healed, wander, and arrested. We've spent the, the past six weeks in Luke's introduction to the book of Acts, which is essentially the first two chapters of the book. We've seen the Lord Jesus teach his apostles about the kingdom of God and prepare them to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a confirmation of the arrival of the kingdom. And it was also through the power of the Holy Spirit that they were to then take the message of the kingdom. They were to witness to Christ. They were to take that message to the ends of the earth, beginning in Jerusalem. Luke concludes the introduction by summarizing the early days uh, in the life of the church following Jesus' final act, his final redemptive act, in the outpouring of his Spirit at Pentecost, which resulted in roughly a 26-fold increase, moving the church from 120 people to over 3,000 disciples. What we saw last week when we looked at the end of Acts chapter 2 is that the disciples uh, were marked by a fear of and delight in God and a devotion to learning Christ. Worshiping God together in their homes and in the temple. They, they loved one another and they sought to evangelize the lost. Which, in, which we see at the end um, in verse 47 that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Today, Luke commences the main narrative of the book by recalling what happened one day as Peter and John were going up to the temple to pray together. So let me read uh, chapter 3 in the first four verses of chapter 4. Then we will outline our passage and get to work. Luke writes, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. 
While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You were the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. So we're going to look at at this passage under three headings this morning. In verses 1 through 10, we will see the healing of a lame beggar outside of the temple Second, in verses 11 through 26, we will see Peter address the bewildered crowd and call them to repent for their unbelief. And third, in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 4, we will see the first real conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man uh, as the first conflict in this book between those two as the religious leaders make their first attack. So look with me in the first place then at verses 1 through 11 of chapter 3 where we see Peter and John meet and heal this beggar. (laughs) This healing episode can be divided into three acts. In act 1, we see Peter and John meet the man who has been lame from birth. In act 2, Peter heals the man. And in act 3, a crowd forms as the folks just don't know what to make of this miracle. They don't know what to do with it. 
So we'll look at each of those. Around 3 p.m., Peter and John were walking up to the temple. And they see a man who was lame from birth being carried and laid outside of the temple, one of the temple entrances near the gate called Beautiful. Now the man sees the two apostles, Peter and John, and he asked them for alms. He asked them for a generous handout since he was unable to do much for himself. He was looking for um, generosity from them. And I want to highlight for you the way that Luke unfolds what takes place in this conversation. And as important as the words spoken are, I think also what he says they're doing is also incredibly important. Look at what Luke does here where he mentions that uh, either Peter, John, or the man himself, he's drawing attention to what they are seeing, what they are looking at. Five different times in the span of three verses he does that here, right? He sees Peter and John, he asks for alms, and then Peter directs his gaze... John also directs his gaze, and then Peter tells him, look at us, and then he looks at them, fixing his attention on them. Luke seems to be highlighting something here that was important to the apostles. And it was essentially this. Ministry is a personal matter. Ministry requires looking at someone and engaging with his or her humanity. This, of course, was something the apostles had learned from Jesus himself. Right? Luke, he, goes, he, he, puts, he lays great weight and attention on where everyone in this story is directing his gaze. And this echoes the ministry of the Lord Jesus, who always made it a point to see and to be seen by the people in front of him to whom he ministered. One example, think of Mark 6, where he, he sees the, the, the hungry crowd before him, right? It says he, he sees them, and he has compassion on them, and then that motivates him and prompts him to feed them. And he does so miraculously with a few loaves of bread and two fish. This was something that Peter and John had seen from the Lord Jesus. And so having learned from their teacher, they now seek to do the same and engage in personal ministry. Now we're told the man was expecting to receive something from them. And Peter most assuredly has something to give him, though it's not what he expected. He tells him, I don't, I don't have any money to give you, but what I do have, I gladly give to you. And he takes him by the right hand. He raises him up, telling him to start walking. And when he does this, the man's feet immediately become strong. His feet and his ankles were made strong. And again, with the way that Luke describes this here, we see the personal nature of this encounter. Right? Peter not only looks at the man, he not only enjoins the man to look at him, but he reaches down and grabs the man's hand, touching him. This was something else that he saw his Lord do. Jesus also often touched people who were either dead or dying or leprous. Jesus was always eager to extend the personal nature of his 
miracles to his recipients. And Peter and John are eager to do the same. And so what is the effect? So we've seen Act 1, that they meet the man, then they heal the man. But in Act 3 here in this first section, what's the effect? Well, the man leaps up, he begins to walk, he keeps walking, he keeps leaping and praising God. A wonderful fulfillment of Isaiah 35, 6, which says, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. And in this miracle, this fulfillment of Old Testament expectation of the new creation brought in by the Lord Jesus, the people around just don't know what to do with it. A crowd begins to form in utter amazement. The scene is wild. I mean, seriously think about it if it were you. You're at the temple and you see this man that you know. Probably, certainly by name. Many of, many of us might know him by name. But maybe you just know him by his face and by his, his disability. And his daily practice of, he was over 40 years old, Luke tells us in verse 22 of chapter 4. So for decades, this man had likely been outside the temple, begging for money. And now, at a word, he is running around, jumping up and down, leaping and praising God. He had been healed. And so that's the first point. The man is healed, quite simply. But then Peter takes the opportunity here in our second point in verses uh, really uh, 11 through 26 to unpack the meaning of this. And he addresses and confronts ultimately a disbelieving crowd. He notices, we're told, that this crowd has begun to gather around him at Solomon's portico. And so he takes the opportunity, like any good preacher, to offer them a sermon. And we'll consider his sermon in two parts. First, he accuses his listeners, just as he had done at Pentecost, he accuses them of being guilty of the murder of Jesus. And he explains that it is by faith in the name of Jesus that this man has been made well. And so he offers an indictment on the crowd through verse 16. But then secondly, he turns a bit more hopeful and he exhorts them to overcome their ignorance and to receive Jesus as the one whom the Old Testament prophets long awaited. So look with me in the first section, verses 12 through 16, where Peter addresses the crowd with a question. He says, why are you so confused at what you've just witnessed? Do you think that we did this in our own power? Do you think it was because of our piety that we're just that, we're just that much holier than the rest of you and so we're able to perform this miracle? Is that why you think this man was made well? No, he says, you've, you've got it all wrong. The God of our fathers... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our God, he has glorified his servant Jesus. And of course, at this name of Jesus, perhaps many might have bristled. He says, yes, Jesus, the one that you rejected, the one that you delivered over to Pilate, 
Now, Pilate was going to let him go, but you wanted God's servant dead so much so that you asked for a murderer instead, Barabbas, to be released to you. He says, you denied and killed the holy and righteous one, the author of life. And yet, he goes on, never failing to leave out the resurrection, he says, despite your rejection, despite your murder of Jesus, God raised him up. And of all of this, we are witnesses. Peter's words really drip with with irony here. And they show us just how far from God his audience was. They preferred one who takes life, a murderer, to God's servant who gives life. He is the author of life, Peter says. They killed Jesus. God gave Jesus life again. Could they be more estranged from God and all that he prizes? He makes it clear. The author of life has seen fit to restore to health this man before you. And he commends without reservation here, faith. Twice he says it is through faith that this man has been made well. One commentator notes, he says, any man or woman who has ever done anything substantial for Christ has done so only by faith in His name. And so he makes it clear. It's not because of us. It's not because of our own strength, our own might, our own wisdom or holiness. It isn't because of how good we are. It is merely through faith. It is the Lord who did this work. We are the instruments. And so the the implied question that begins to form to the crowd here is a simple one. It's, will you relate to Jesus by faith? He goes on and, and makes the point more direct and offers hope more thoroughly, beginning in verse 17. He speaks of their ignorance and he seeks to supply what is lacking in their knowledge of Christ in the hope that they would receive Christ. He says that the crowd, as well as their rulers, had acted ignorantly. Now he's not excusing them, saying, oh, well, you didn't know any better, so it's it's all right. Because he goes on and makes it clear they should have known better. He says this should not have caught you by surprise. The prophets had foretold this Christ. Namely, that he would suffer. He likely has Isaiah 52 and 53 in mind here. And he goes on, he says, Jesus did in fact suffer. And he suffered at your hands in accordance with the Scriptures. And you should know this. But as we saw previously in Peter's sermon at Pentecost, his aim is not mere intellectual acquisition. It was heart change. He didn't just want them to know what they had done wrong. He calls upon them to repent, to turn back. And this repentance that he commands to them would have a threefold effect, which he offers. He says, repent that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing would come from the presence of the Lord, and that he would send the Christ appointed for them, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke 
by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So this command to repent here, one thing that we must again affirm is that like we saw before last week, there is no separating repentance and faith. He commends faith in verse 16. And then when Luke describes the response of many in the crowd, he does so in terms of faith. In 4.4 he says that they believed. And so we see here the need for preaching not only faith, but repentance. Peter once again is, is emphasizing something here like he did in his sermon on Pentecost. He highlights the audience's need to repent because they were personally involved, according to Peter, in the execution of the Messiah. He's drawing their attention to their specific need to repent of a specific sin. We repent specifically, not uh, generally or generically. He says, repent of murdering Jesus so that you might be forgiven of that sin and receive refreshment from him. And again, to highlight like we did before, what an amazing thing that forgiveness can be offered to those who took the life of the Messiah, who, who murdered God's Son, that they would have the opportunity to repent. And so for us as well, what sins do we commit? Do we struggle with? What sins keep us from going to the Lord? Are they worse than the murder of the Son of God? So he tells them to repent. That their sins may be blotted out. Times of refreshing may may come upon them. That they may receive um, the removal of their, the judgment for their sins. That they may receive blessing from the Lord. And then he offers a third effect in the latter half of verse 20 and 21. Um that their repentance would have. And he says that it's that God would send the Christ appointed for them. And he clarifies, in case they weren't sure, that this Christ was, of course, Jesus. And he says that heaven must receive this Christ until the time for restoring all things about which God had spoken by his prophets. So what's he saying here? The point is this. Christ offers to those who are repentant, he offers forgiveness and refreshment. And while he remains in heaven until the restoration of the cosmos at his final coming, those who turn back from their sins shall receive him. And of course, we see the connection with with Pentecost. How do we receive Christ? But by receiving now his spirit whom he gave to his church on Pentecost. And so, friends, do you have this Christ? I pray that you would, that you would receive him through faith and repentance in his name. Peter goes on in in this last part of, of his sermon here, and he quotes from the Old Testament a couple times. He quotes first from Deuteronomy 18, verses 15, 18, and 19. Right? He does this uh, here in verse 22. 
he refers to the time when God, through Moses, had promised that Israel would receive from him a prophet like Moses, that he would raise up a prophet like Moses from among their brothers. And he says, and it was to him that they should listen. Any that do not listen to this second Moses shall be destroyed. Now, Peter had a very special insight given to him regarding this reality. Back in Luke's Gospel, it's recording for us in chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. We read there about the transfiguration. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain with him and is transfigured in glory before them. And whom do they see but Moses and Elijah? And as again, as important there as what they see is, whom they see, what do they hear? They hear a voice from heaven. God says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And so Peter makes the same connection for the crowd here at Solomon's portico that he had received then and came to understand more fully after the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. Jesus is the Moses-like prophet whom God had raised up. They must listen to him. Just as Moses and Elijah, representative of the, the law and the prophets, had been surpassed by Jesus, Peter says, guys, this longing that we have has come. And he alludes to Samuel, the prophet that God had established uh, had used to establish his kingdom in the Old Testament in Israel. He says, Samuel and all the prophets who came after him, they spoke of what we are seeing and hearing now. So he says to the crowd, listen to Jesus. Receive Jesus or be destroyed. But then he ends on a note of hope for his listeners. He says, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers. And then he quotes from Genesis 12, and he offers the blessing that is found in Abraham's seed to those present. He says, God had raised up his servant and sent him to the Jews first that they might be blessed in the offspring of Abraham, that they might be turned from their wickedness. So yes, they were guilty of murdering Jesus, but amazingly, Like we said, there is still hope. They could turn from their sins, receive Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah, and if they would listen to Him as their prophet, they would be blessed in Him, the offspring of Abraham. But then they get interrupted. We see in the first four verses of chapter 4, a, a twofold response. We see the response of the religious leaders and we see the response of many in the crowd. And really what we are witnessing here is a, a battle, a war. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of man coming into conflict with one another as the religious leaders go on the attack. Peter and John continued speaking with the people after Peter had finished preaching. They were talking with the people present. And while they were talking, the priest, 
the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed. At what? Look at what annoys them so in verse 2. They were preaching the resurrection in Jesus. You know, much gospel preaching today emphasizes the cross as a vital and central emphasis of the gospel message. And of course, it is. But we mustn't forget the empty tomb. Without the empty tomb, the cross is meaningless. And what we will find in the narrative of Acts, as we go through it, the enemies of the cross are really the enemies of the empty tomb. No one would take issue or care at all about the cross of Jesus if the tomb was still full. If Jesus was still dead in the tomb, no one would care about his cross. It is the empty tomb that makes the cross so troublesome to the powers that be. To simply say that Jesus died would not have bothered them. They knew he died. They murdered him. It was to say that he had overcome this death as Lord and King that bothered them. The empty tomb provides the definitive threat to the kingdom of darkness. Since Christ's rescue of sinners is vindicated as satisfactory in God's sight by the resurrection into which we are now welcomed when we come to Jesus by faith. That was the offer. Come into resurrection life. And so what do these uh, religious leaders do who... Uh, are still very much under the sway of the kingdom of man, well, they see that their kingdom is under threat as the exalted Lord Jesus continues to expand His territory. And so they make an attack. They arrest two members of God's kingdom. And they put them in custody until the next day. And this is where we will leave Peter and John until, Lord willing, next week. They're sitting in a jail cell. But before we wrap up here, I want you to see what Luke writes in verse 4. He says, Many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Even in the face of persecution, the kingdom marches on. And consider the imbalance of this war that we see here. The kingdom of God recruits 3,000 people in a single day. Back in chapter 2, verse 41. And then many more daily after that. The kingdom of man responds to this by, a, by temporarily imprisoning two of the Lord's soldiers. What does the kingdom of God then do in response to that? Well, once again, we see the Lord Jesus launch a massive campaign and permanently recruit thousands more from the world's forces. Right? Luke gives us an update here in 4.4 on the progress of the kingdom. 
Jesus had said in, in 1.8, Acts 1.8, Hey, be my witnesses here, there, and abroad. Take the message out. It's going forth. Luke says, well, how's it doing? The number of the men came to about 5,000, he says. Now, there were roughly 3,120 believers by the end of the day on Pentecost. By the time we get to Peter and John's arrest, and we don't know how long this was. Was it the next week or a month later? It doesn't say. But whenever it was, when we get to their arrest, there are 5,000, he says, men. So this means that the total number of disciples, if you include women and children, would likely have been far larger than that. The Lord isn't playing around. Luke wants Theophilus, the man to whom he's writing, and by extension the rest of us, to have a rock-solid confidence that the kingdom of God has come. That the kingdom of God is going forth and conquering. The kingdom of the world doesn't stand a chance. The task of witnessing to Christ upon which Jesus had set His apostles, it started with a bang. 3,000 souls saved in a single day. And here in the next chapter, it shows no signs of slowing up. Now, That sounds very great and optimistic, but if you've read Acts before, you know that the kingdom of man doesn't take this defeat here lying down. We haven't reached the boiling point yet. These are early skirmishes in this battle, but there is a coming collision that will have ends of the earth reaching side effects. Now, of course, Those are not the side effects intended by the kingdom of man in the coming persecution. But it absolutely is the very plan of God being worked out unto His perfect ends. And so God is preparing His church here for war. And so the question that remains for us is this. Whose sign are you on? Have you aligned yourself with or against the author of life? Are you with the holy and righteous one, the one in whose name the lame walk? Are you with the one of whom the prophets spoke, the one in whom all the families of the earth shall be blessed, the one in whom the resurrection of the dead is proclaimed? Are you on the side of the king? Or do you continue to walk in the passions of your flesh among the sons of disobedience following the prince of the power of the air? My friends, make no mistake. We are at war. And the battles are often grueling and devastating in the moment. But ultimately, victory has been secured by our captain. The Lord Jesus has conquered death, and by faith in Him, we may participate in the newness of life into which He has walked. 
And so, to which kingdom have you given your allegiance? I pray that for each and every one of us here this morning, that we would listen to Jesus, receive him as our prophet, our priest, and our king. And so be brought forever and always from death into newness of life. Amen.